I realized a few years ago that either you had to slow down or you had to improve your health. And I realized that a lot of us, when we improve our health, we get to experience what optimal performance looks like. Whereas if you just slow down, you can sometimes just become lazy, lethargic, complacent, overwhelmed. But if we start to prioritize our health and well-being, then we can be more abundant. And so when you find your stillness in your day, you can move fast for the rest of the day from that space that you're carrying within you. Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and this is What I've Learned. Today, I'm talking to Jay Shetty about the power of stillness and the monk mindset. We've all learned our own individual lessons over the past year. When so much of our lives were stripped away, we are forced to ask ourselves, what do I really need and what do I really value? In 2014, I wrote Thrive, a book that became the basis for Thrive Global. The premise of the book was that our definition of success is broken, that just chasing money and power doesn't leave us fulfilled, and that we need a third metric of success, one based on well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving back. It's a concept of success rooted in both ancient wisdom and modern science. And the pandemic has been a chance for many of us to re-examine our notions of success, of happiness, and of what truly makes us fulfilled. As my favorite poet Rumi put it, you wander from room to room hunting for the diamond necklace that is already around your neck. My guest today trained as a monk and learned that happiness is found in purpose and service. And he's put that training to amazing use, seeking to help people find stillness in the middle of their busy lives. I've known and loved Jay Shetty for years since I first noticed the incredible videos he was making and brought him to the Huffington Post. Since then, he's reached a huge global audience, and his book, Think Like a Monk, is a number one bestseller already translated in over 50 languages, while his podcast, On Purpose, is the number one health podcast. He's taught millions of people valuable lessons about life, but also, and that's what I so love about him, he's constantly learning himself. Here's what he's learned over the past year. At the beginning of the pandemic, the monk mindset probably gave me an unfair advantage because I enjoy being alone. But I was happy to see people opening themselves up to the benefits of solitude. In my training as a monk, we were taught not to seek happiness and enjoyment. We were trained instead to seek purpose and service. The beautiful thing about purpose, meaning, and service is that there's never a year or day that you can't find them. There will be plenty of days and even years in your life where happiness and enjoyment may escape you. But actually, purpose and meaning and service are far more enjoyable and bring more deep happiness in the long term. I was able to put a lot of the sections of Think Like a Monk to use myself. There's also a chapter in the book on fear and using the Y ladder. When the pandemic started, my biggest fear was, oh no, I won't be able to see my parents in London. And then I asked myself, well, why am I scared of that? 
And I was scared because I thought, oh, I won't get to be with them this year. And then I asked myself, why am I scared of that? And I thought, oh, I'm scared of that because I won't get to tell them I love them and how much they mean to me. So the honest answer at the root when I kept asking myself, why, was that I don't tell them I love them enough right now. I don't invest enough in that relationship. The concept of the why ladder, continuously asking yourself why you fear something, why you're anxious for something, takes you to the root. What I was scared of at the root was something that I could do something about. And so I set up a schedule to start calling my family every week to express how much I loved them, to see that they were okay. One of the biggest lessons I learned over the past year is that you can always be more still, that you can always have more clarity, that you can always be slower and more mindful and more meditative. There's a beautiful quote by Gandhi in which he says, there's more to life than increasing its speed. And I think that even if we think we're mindful in the speed, we're not as mindful as we think we are. For me, the most important part of what's happening is that everyone in the world is obviously going through the same thing. So we have an opportunity to experience compassion and empathy on a greater scale. We saw all these beautiful stories of humanity arising in a time of pain. Whether it was people singing on their balconies or people teaching a workout from their rooftops, it's so easy to forget all that goodness amongst so much sadness. But being able to amplify and highlight the goodness is an important part of the monk mindset. We are going to hear more from Jay when we return after this short break. Sleep is the foundation of every aspect of our physical and our mental well-being. That's always true. But in extraordinary times of anxiety and stress, getting the sleep we need is more important than ever. Sleep is essential to both a strong immune system and to our mental resilience, the very things we need to navigate these uncertain times. That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's available for free for members and includes bedtime stories, meditations, and extended soundscapes from Nick Jonas, Sean, Didi, Combs, Kiki Palmer, and more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite audible sleep experiences at the end of this podcast. Jay, I love what you just said about recognizing during the pandemic what you were missing before the pandemic in the speed of your life. And that Gandhi quote, that there is more to life than increasing its speed, is pure gold. So frankly, you seem as busy as ever, if not busier than ever. So what has changed in terms of your life speed? I think one of the most amazing things that's happened is having a bird's eye view of life, of being able to truly zoom out and look at life from above and start to notice what 
is uncomfortable, what is comfortable, what is working, what's not working. And I would say that I've approached 2021 with a lot more structure and organization. So I wanted to be highly intentional in my work even more than before. I wanted to make sure that I was working with people that I felt an equal energy with. You won't know whether you're with someone with the right energy for you if you're always moving really fast. So I think stillness is an internal thing. I don't think it needs to be an external thing. I often think about Formula One drivers, Formula One racers, and you think about someone like Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton is driving over 200 miles per hour, but he's still and has to be even more still internally to be able to approach each corner and to approach each lap. And I think that's what all of us have to be, that our lives externally will always move fast. There'll always be new opportunities and new challenges. But just like that Formula One racer, we remained grounded and seated and centered. I love that. So you feel more inner stillness, no matter what the external speed I'm aspiring for that. I wouldn't, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm there yet. I realized a few years ago that either you had to slow down or you had to improve your health. And I realized that a lot of us, when we improve our health, we get to experience what optimal performance looks like. Whereas if you just slow down, you can sometimes just become lazy, lethargic, complacent, overwhelmed. But if we start to prioritize our health and well-being, then we can be more abundant. And so the idea that finding time, and I know you believe in this so much, and I've learned so much from your beautiful books, Thrive and Sleep Revolution, but it's that idea that when you find your stillness in your day, you can move fast for the rest of the day from that space that you're carrying within you. I love that. You know, I call it being in the eye of the hurricane. The hurricane has an eye, a place of peace and uh, stillness in the middle of all that chaos. And uh, that's what I'm aspiring to. That's my metaphor to match your Formula One metaphor. Yeah, I love that. You know, you had this amazing experience of publishing a book in the middle of the pandemic in September. And yet the book had been written before the pandemic largely, but so perfect for our times. So of all the lessons in the book, what was it for you that was the most relevant to the pandemic? And then I can tell you what I thought was the most relevant for me. And of course, you wrote a beautiful testimonial that's on the back cover of the book. And I was so grateful to receive your words because... I always mention in every interview that I do that without you, I wouldn't be where I am today. You're, you're the reason I had my first tipping point, as they call them. And without you in my life, I wouldn't have had that exposure. So I'm, I'm eternally indebted and grateful to you for that. When I think about the question that you're asking me now around the book, the biggest lesson is that for once in everyone's life, a lot of people had to live like monks. They were alone. They were isolated. They were not allowed to be with lots of people. They were spending a lot more hours indoors with themselves. And the biggest lesson that I think was relevant is a lesson that I learned as a monk, but was more recently spoken about through a writer named Paul Tillich. 
And what he said really struck me and it really defines living like a monk. He said that we think of loneliness is the weakness of being alone, but solitude is the strength of being alone. People becoming more comfortable with themselves, people learning to love their own company, people learning what they believe and what they care about. This was a unique opportunity for that. And I think that was the most relevant lesson that we all could learn to think like monks. And is it harder to practice healthy solitude when you are married? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, your wife is such a great part of your social presence and your life. So I wonder how that works. Listen, my marriage didn't work out, so I'm not going to be giving any marriage lessons, but maybe we can get some lessons from you. Yeah, well, you have amazing daughters, so I'll have to come to you for parenting (laughs) advice. In regards to solitude, I remember John Gray, the famous author, he said something beautiful. He talked about you time, me time, and we time. And I find that in my relationship, I'm very thankful that Radhi, my wife, enjoys her time alone. And I also crave my time alone. The first couple of years we were married, we spent around eight months apart, largely because you brought me to New York. So, so it, is, it was <laughs> it's your, my fault. Yeah, it's yeah. your fault. It's your fault. Uh, but because you gave me that wonderful opportunity in New York and my wife wanted to be with her family in London. And so she would go back to London all the time. And at first, everyone would say to us, oh, is your relationship okay? Like, are you guys happy? Like, you just got married. Is there an issue? And I started to realize that we actually got strengthened in our relationship because I used that as time for myself to grow and evolve. And therefore I had more to offer her when we were reunited. We have this slightly confused view because we say things like, oh, he or she completes me. What does that mean? You're incomplete. And I think those mindsets have really polluted our view of love and relationships. I think we should be a independent individual and so should our partner. And then when we come together, we can build something beautiful together. And it's not perfect or it's not easy, but it makes more sense to me than just being constantly dependent on each other. And did you find that was incredibly helpful during a time when you're kind of isolating together, being able to come from your fullness rather than, as you said, experiencing the other person as completing you. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, I think we had to reestablish our new way of living. We weren't used to both working from the same place all day, every day together. And, you know, my wife obviously spends her time working in the kitchen that can be very loud. And then I'm trying to spend my time recording. (laughs) And so those two things don't necessarily go well together. And so in the beginning, it took a lot of new learning. And I think that's the biggest lesson I took away last year is that your relationship is as good as your learning about each other. And your relationship is only moving forward when you're learning. There are times in my relationship where Radhi guides us and there are times in our relationship where I guide us. And I think knowing when to follow and when to lead is a really important skill. So you have to put your ego aside and you have to be okay with learning and following and being guided by your partner. Actually, you write in the book about your, the ego generally and how 
if you don't uh, break your ego, life will break it for you. And did you find uh, during the pandemic that that was even more so? Because a lot of the external validations that come with travel and big auditoria and large audiences uh, were not there. Yeah, I think you start to realize that the frontline heroes and the people that were delivering our food, they're the real heroes, right? They're the real superhumans that were saving the day, whether it was people working in hospitals, whether it was grocery delivery people, whether it was the delivery people of packages. I mean, all of us were completely dependent on them. And so the approach I took is I learned as a monk that the only certainty in uncertainty is service. So actually, in a tough time, you can't find happiness. You can't find joy always but you can always find service. You can always find meaning. You can always find purpose. There's always someone who's in need. And so I realized that we were doing meditations for hospital workers in the background, or we were doing meditations for frontline workers uh, in the background. And I found a new purpose in my own work because I was having an opportunity to work with people in smaller groups. So, Jay, you know, I'm, I mentioned at the beginning how you talked about healthy solitude being one of the lessons you learned during the pandemic. For me, one of the things I learned that you also write about in the book is the fear and anxiety that come out of uncertainty. And I noticed with all the companies we're working with, there was so much negative fantasizing about the future. You know, the truth is that the future is unbelievably uncertain. Of course, it's always uncertain. It's now doubly uncertain. How can we stop ourselves from turning uncertainty into negative fantasies? You know, I have a little saying on my desk from Montaigne, you know, the French philosopher who said, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> but our mind identifies them as though they were completely real. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a great question. It's crazy, isn't it, that everything first exists in the mind before it exists in reality, but we only practice and play the negative fantasies, not the positive ones. One of the ways that's really helped me is to ask myself one very simple question at the end of every day or at the beginning of every day. And the question is, what do I need to do today to make me feel like today was a success? So that's the question. What do I need to do today to make me feel like today was a success? The truth is that you can have a day where you check off everything off your to-do list and feel really unfulfilled. I've had plenty of days in my life where I've completely crushed my schedule, I've checked off everything, but inside I still feel like I'm not fulfilled. And I'm sure many people of the companies you work with feel very similarly. And that's because ultimately we're all emotional beings where if we've not accomplished our deepest priority, we don't feel a sense of progress. Now, someone's priority may be reading a book to their children before bedtime. Some people's top priority or that one thing may be, as long as I've exercised today, I feel like I've made some growth. Someone's maybe, as long as I meditate today, whatever it is. 
And so the idea is that we will constantly build negative fantasies about the future when we don't feel like we've done what we need to do today that makes us feel successful and happy. And uh, does it change for you? Is every day different? Yes, absolutely. I, I think sometimes it's as simple as I'm happy if I've been kind and giving my positive energy to other people. Like sometimes that's my favorite thing of the day. There was a time when I was joining so many Zoom calls that I felt like I was almost a robot. And, and I started to realize that no matter how many of those I did, I felt so empty. But if you just come on and you share your energy and you look everyone in the eye and you say their name and you thank them for what they're doing and you appreciate them, that to me sometimes is my biggest thing that I need to accomplish of the day. So it changes. And what was it today? <laughs> yeah, good question. Really good question. I think today the biggest thing for me uh, was to make sure that the people that I'm working with, that they were happy. Because I think that once I find my stability, I'm always wanting to extend that. I think that's, that's a nice feeling of when you feel secure that you can extend that security to others. I love that. And that extending yourself has been such a big part of your life and your teaching. But at the same time, learning to set boundaries is key. You know, I've noticed, for example, that this has been a very intensely political year and you are incredibly engaged, but you have set some boundaries around political participation. How, how did you make these decisions? I think that the work that I do and the work that I'm trying to help people with, I'm trying to appeal to people's souls and hearts. And to me, I really believe that no external change will substitute a lack of internal change. I really believe that. And I think that often as humans, we're so obsessed with wanting something to change externally for us to feel better. But the truth is that you could have all the best, amazing things happen to you externally, but they'll never make you feel better. And, you know, you have to make yourself feel better. So I'm trying to work on that. I, my role in life is to serve people by introducing them to the advice and the tools that I learned and to pass those on. And those were never about trying to make just an external change, but trying to make an internal change. At the same time, I fully stand by people who are using their voice to make external change. We also use creativity and poetry to make change. We made some beautiful videos around the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And those videos that I made were my way of using my voice for what I felt was important and powerful. And so often I find that poetry and creativity is equal to activism because it can appeal to people in a different way. And, and my approach is always to try and see how we can appeal to anyone and everyone's hearts. And so the videos I made were very much me putting my hand up saying, I've also made this mistake. I've also had these challenges. I think that's always been my approach. So hopefully that answers your question, Ariana. Yes, it's really identifying what's your own personal mission. Where can you have the biggest impact? And focusing on that. And if we could sum up how you could have the biggest impact, it's actually connected with what you write about changing our monkey minds into monk minds. From our monk minds, 
we are more empathetic, we are more loving, we are less resentful. And so a lot of the things that we want to achieve become much more likely. Tell us more about this transformation. Yes, I I read a beautiful statement recently that has had such a profound impact in my life and how I approach even the monk mind. It was a statement by a writer named Russell Barkley. And he said that people who need the most love often ask for it in the most unloving ways. And I'll just repeat that for everyone. People who need the most love often ask for it in the most unloving ways. And that made me realize that everyone in the world is seeking love. Even when they're hurting, even when they're creating pain for others, somewhere inside of them, that is a seeking, a searching, a cry for love. And so if we approach them with love, we actually potentially give them the opportunity to purify their pain. One of the reasons I wrote this book wasn't just because I lived as a monk, but actually I share the studies and the insights of monks who are far more experienced than I am. And if we all lived from a place of compassion and empathy, I think we'd be better at solving a lot of today's challenges because somehow ego finds a way of creeping in even to our activism. Ego finds a way of creeping in to our stance on positioning and helping other people. Ego creeps into to all of our positive impact work. And to me, if we can resist that, then the impact that we'll make on people's lives is truly pure. And so I often give the analogy of uh, you may have the noble heart of wanting to distribute water to the whole world. But if you distribute polluted water, you only spread more disease. And so we first have to purify the water that we're handing out. And I'm trying to do that in my own life. And it's not easy, but it's, but it's definitely the path. Jay, thank you so much for sharing with us everything you've learned through this pandemic year and for sharing your love and your wisdom every day and for spreading joy. Um, This has been one of the things I've so loved about what you've brought to the world during this very, very challenging year, that there is joy to be found even in the middle of suffering and pain. And remembering that fills me with gratitude for you and your work. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Ariana. That means the world coming from you. And I go back to thanking you for everything you've done for me over the last few years. And I wouldn't be where I am today without you. So any of my success is, is your success. And, and because of you, I share it all back with you in deep gratitude. Before we wrap up today, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by the conversation that you can take with you. As we've just heard, Jay is amazing at connecting with people and putting empathy into action. But empathy isn't a trait we're either born with or not born with. Empathy and connecting with others is a skill we can learn and one that will deepen all of our relationships. So the micro step I'm going to leave you with is tomorrow have a conversation where you mostly just listen. Our attention is powerful. And we often underestimate the impact we can have on someone 
when instead of eagerly figuring out our response to whatever it is they're saying, we just deeply listen. Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next time on What I've Learned. A warning. This next clip might put you to sleep. And that's the point. It's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible to create exclusive audio experiences to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. The Audible Sleep Collection includes meditations from Sean Didi Combs, Gabby Bernstein, and many others, including Nick Jonas, who we are about to hear from. The stories have no beginning, no middle, and no end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here is a bedtime story called The Perfect Swing. Nick Jonas turns to one of his favorite subjects, baseball, bringing in Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. What's the perfect swing? There's a good chance you'll be asleep before you find out. The Perfect Swing by James McGurk and read by me, Nick Jonas. Settle in, take a deep breath, and listen to me take you on a journey about the perfect baseball swing. How do you quantify the perfect swing? There's no better time or place to begin than New York City in 1941. At that moment, Joe DiMaggio was an American hero. Nicknamed the Yankee Clipper in 1939, he was the son of Italian immigrants and a superb all-around player with a squeaky clean good guy image. That season, he would go on to get a hit in 56 consecutive games. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear this sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight.